Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. podcast listeners. Apologies, it's taken me so long to release another episode. I definitely tried to release this episode last week. But as I've spoken about a little bit on the podcast before, I'm kind of trying this new thing where I don't overextend myself and um, work myself into a pit of exhaustion as I have done for basically my entire life. And it's a very challenging experiment, I have to say. I'm definitely someone who has suffered from quite a bit of perfectionism and overachieving and grandiosity, as Alice Miller refers to it in Drama of the Gifted Child. Kind of just going, going, and going in order to distract from self-care and just overall general happiness and authenticity. You know, we're not really meant or built to work as hard as we work. So it's kind of exchanging one challenge for another though, right? Because if I do all the work I feel I need to do, then I feel good about myself in some way. But if I don't, it's this new experience where I have to feel good about the slowness, (laughs) I definitely would choose the latter, but it's an adjustment. So it always makes me feel shitty when I don't get things out or do things in a speedy amount of time or or in the time period in which I I wish I did. I actually, (laughs) although I think I probably would still do this. This is funny. I always tell people this story. When I was in college, we had these things called conference papers. So I went to Sarah Lawrence College and... It was a very unconventional school, to say the least. There weren't really any tests unless you took a course where you kind of had to be tested, like science, math, or language, which very few people went to Sarah Lawrence to study those things. It was mostly, you know, writing and um, psychology and uh, gender and sexuality studies, etc., So, but anyway, we had these things called conference papers. So sort of in exchange for quote unquote tests, we would write like 15 to 25 page papers loosely based on the course material, uh, every semester or per year, depending on how long the course was and what the professor wanted us to do. So in addition to going into class every week or twice a week or whatever it was, we would then meet with our teachers on a biweekly basis to, discuss our uh, conference paper and our research and our topic and, and, you know, all of that stuff. 
and the classes would end uh, at the end of the semester or the year. And there was like a week that everyone called conference week, which was when everyone had to figure and finalize and finish their conference papers. And I had a very unique college experience. Um, I, I sometimes question why I chose the type of college experience that I chose. I have some reasons why it happened the way that it did, but school for me was school. I had very, I, I made aside from my year abroad, no friends in college, even though I was surrounded by people with a lot of similar interests. Um, I was living off campus for the bulk of my college experience. I was working full time. So I think that took, partially took me away from the kind of social life of school, but I never felt weird about it. I was so into the schooling part. I was so into what I was learning. I was so into spending hours upon hours in the library that I'm actually kind of grateful that I didn't get distracted with all of that sort of traditional college stuff, because for me, the schooling in and of itself was so fucking valuable um, and was so fun because I had a really terrible, terrible time in high school. I thought I was stupid. <laughs> I couldn't take tests like it was awful. And so when I went to college for the first time, I was like, oh, I'm actually not dumb. I just like don't learn in the way that high schools teach. And if I'm focusing on topics and subjects that I find fascinating, I'm actually really good at this. And like, wait, my, all that I have to do is like read and write and come into this class, which is 15 people, if even sitting around a round table and discuss what we read. Like, uh, you have to put tape over my mouth. I had so much to say. Anyway, point being, I did this weird thing for myself. It wasn't super intentional, but I just decided to like set the deadline of my own, of my conference papers due like two weeks before they were actually due. So I guess the reasoning was if I finish super early and there's something else I need to add then I have time to do so. And I was never really someone that enjoyed procrastination or stress or like staying up all night in a library it was never my style. So I had so much self-control and set this deadline way ahead of the curve so that by the time everyone else during conference week was like busting their ass writing, I was like chilling and like getting high. <laughs> like It was awesome. Um, but I was so focused and so diligent. And at the time, I think because I was enjoying what I was doing, it didn't feel like I was overworking or stretching myself too thin. But that's always sort of been my strategy in accomplishing things like, oh, you're going to give me a deadline. I'm going to make the deadline sooner. Like, oh, you're going to you want me to write a 15 page paper. I'm going to write you a 35 page paper. And I think there's some value in that as long as it's coming from an authentic place. But if it's coming from a place of like avoiding other things in your life or trying to prove something through that success, then it's not super healthy. So where I'm at now is just trying to find the balance between those two things. And so sometimes I'm not going to release a podcast every week because I'm traveling, which is what I was doing. I had like, I went away and came back for a couple days and, uh, just couldn't get my shit together guys. But here we are. I've got a lot of uh, episodes in the pipeline. So hopefully you will get one for me every week for the next, however many weeks. Um, let's see. I, like I said, have been traveling. I came back from the Bombay beach Biennale 
a couple days ago, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, This intro is going to be relatively long because I've got a lot to say. Anyway, the Bombay Beach Biennale, uh, I think this is the fourth year that it happened. It's the second year that I went. It's sort of like if you could imagine Burning Man in the early days, except the art stays put. There's no marketing. You can't really buy tickets. If you're going to go, you've got to either like know somebody or participate in um, creating the art for the event. And the overall meaning behind it is to raise awareness around the environmental disaster that is the Salton Sea. Um, so it takes place out in a little town called Bombay Beach, um, on the Salton Sea, obviously. It's a completely dilapidated town. Um, back in the 70s, I believe, people used to like vacation out in the Salton Sea, and so Bombay Beach was kind of like the vacation spot. And there were hotels and bars and all sorts of cool, hip spots. Um, but when the Salton Sea stopped being something that you could swim in and enjoy, this town that's sort of located out in the middle of nowhere, there's no grocery stores, there's no gas stations, it's really super isolated, um, Was we're just completely cut off from resources and there was no reason for anyone to come into this spot anymore to support the economics of the town. Um, and so it became super run down. There's like one bar left. You can actually see the foundation of some of the resorts and hotels left on the beach because that's all that's left of them. And so what uh, three friends, Tao, Stefan, and Lily decided to do was to come into this town and say, like, how can we, through art and other creative expression, not only raise awareness for the environmental disaster, but also help to stimulate the economy of this town, which aside from tourism, has very little means in which to do so. So for those of you that don't know, there's something called the uh, Venice Biennale, which is like a big art festival that happens in Venice, Italy, every other year. This Biennale takes place every year. So it's very like surreal, avant-garde. But so Tao had this idea, like, what if we basically move the Venice Biennale, which is this like very fancy high class event into this dilapidated town in Bombay beach. Um, and so it's happened for four years and every year more art is added. Uh, and what's so cool about it is when you go like all of most of the art at least is, is happening or being finished during the event itself. So you're not really going to a festival. You're kind of going uh, into an evolving creation. So what was, what, what struck me so much last year when I went is like what it looked like when I arrived versus what it looked like when I left. There were two different, two totally different things, right? So you would see like a project being started on the first day and it was finished on the last. And so you were sort of witnessing this ever evolving scene and space, which was really cool. Um, you can go online and, and check out some photos and such. Um, anyway, uh, I went again this year. I had to leave early, unfortunately, but it was really cool while I was there. Um, and what what I love so much about it and what I was talking to friends about um, while I was there and, and why I enjoy it so much is because I've always been really fascinated by space. So I've talked a little bit about uh, this on the podcast, I, I have this very intense desire to like buy up a bunch of land and start some sort of 
community lifeboat situation where I can live with people that I love and feel um, that we're a part of a community that feels authentic and instinctual. So not participating in these sort of like structures and routines and cultural norms that don't align with my internal values. And I think, not I think, I know what got me super interested in this idea of public space was going back to college. I took a course, which is by far, I think, the best, coolest course I ever took, which was called Both Public and Private, The Social Construction of Family Life. And it spoke a lot about how we've constructed our private lives, specifically in the realm of family, which is normally where the privacy occurs, right, within relationship and family. Um, it was about how that this process has been created basically from prehistory through the agricultural revolution until now. So these ideas that we have a family structure of privacy, of public space, et cetera, and how that's evolved over time. And what I found, there was much within that that I found meaningful. But one of the things that I thought was really cool was how important physical external space is to organizing a society or a culture. So what I've always struggled with in my life is that I'm kind of walking around thinking, okay, like I've got these beliefs, I've got these um, instinctual feelings about who I want to be and the life I want to live, but there, but my external environment doesn't match that. And it's incredibly hard to operate in that realm and live authentically when what you have available into your, in your external life doesn't match up with how you feel internally. And to change public space is a huge deal, but it has happened. And in this course that I took, uh, I read about it extensively, um, especially in relationship to um, gay communities and the gay rights movement and how important organizing in public space was to defining that movement and that identity um, for people. So I actually want to read for you a couple of passages from this book uh, that I read in that course called Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Making of the Gay Male World from 1890 to 1940. Um, and it's by someone named George Chauncey. Um, and, you know, he talks quite a bit about the evolution of the gay rights movement through um, physical space specifically related to New York. So here's a couple of things that he says that I will elaborate on. Um, gay men interacted on streets throughout the city, but just as various immigrant groups predominated in certain neighborhoods and on certain streets, so too gay men had their own streets and corners, often where gay-oriented saloons and restaurants could be found, along which men strolled, looking for other men to pick up. The efforts of the police to control gay men's use of public space then were part of a much broader effort by the state to quite literally police the boundaries between public and private space, and in particular to impose a bourgeois definition of such distinctions on working class communities. Gay men's strategies for using urban space came under attack not just because they challenged the heteronormativity that ordinarily governed men and women's use of public space, but also because they were part of a more general challenge to dominant cultural conceptions of those boundaries and of the social practices appropriate to each sphere. The inability of the police and reformers to stop such activity reflects their failure to impose a single hegemonic map of the city's public and private spaces on its diverse communities. 
And it's funny because um, at the Biennale, one of the founders was talking about how they took one of these spaces of land. It was sort of like a little ways away from the main town and created this thing called Showtown. It was like this really cool circus performance area um, where there was a lot of live music and like a Ferris wheel type thing and what looked like kind of the shell of a roller coaster. Um, and anyway, one of the, the guys that created the Biennale was talking about how like the authorities came on, was like the day before it started and was like, you don't own this land. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we do. Like nobody else, nobody else owns this land. Like it's fine. And they're like, we're going to come tomorrow. And, like tell you to take all this stuff down because you don't own the land. And so he gave instructions to the people working on all of those things in this area to work all night so that by the time the authorities came back, it would like be done. And what were they going to do? Um, and it just reminded me of this, this piece around like who owns space and how is space defined? Um, and when you think about immigrant groups, as was mentioned in this book as well, Right. Like when you put a bunch of people with a specific culture in a physical space and then that physical space reflects their culture, it's like that's it. That that space and that world has been transformed. And I'm obsessed with places that do this Um, and being at the Biennale. It's like walking into another world. And I appreciate it so much because it makes me realize and recognize that changing the world, in my opinion, seems to be a combination of two things. One, it is to change consciousness. It's an Ionesco quote I always talk about, that revolution is a change in the state of consciousness and a change in physical space. And aside from the laws and order that govern both the internal and external world, that's sort of all there is. And I always talk about this and I talk about it like, oh, it's so simple. And people are like, but it's not so simple, right? There's all these different variables, not only to change these things, but then to manage them and make sure no one takes advantage and blah, 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 blah. And in my mind, it's like, but if we've built a world around things that are so fucking unnatural to us as it relates to family life, relationships, sexuality, these are all we've we've had to go to through like to great lengths to um, manage and structure things that are so unnatural. Would it be that hard to create structures and organization around organizations around things that are natural? It would take a lot of people all agreeing to do the same thing. But I don't think it's impossible. And I the response that I get so frequently that's like, oh, it's too hard. Like to me, it's such an excuse. <laughs> um and and honestly, those responses make me feel like a petulant child and like be like, well, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to fucking do it and prove you all wrong. So anyway, that's that's what I that's what I love about the Biennale. That's what I've been thinking about a lot. And it was Friday night. I think it was the night before I left and I was walking, you know, through it was nighttime and um, there were lights and music and people and you just look out on this environment and you think it's like, it feels normal for a moment. And then you step back from it and realize like, Oh my God, like this area, this place was completely transformed by reflecting people's internal, you know, beliefs and their internal sense of art and beauty outward. 
And I think that's rad. Anyway, that's all I'll say about that. Um, this episode is with Carsey Blanton. She is really cool. I just met her this day that we recorded this podcast. Um, we have some mutual friends. She's a musician, a songwriter. Um, I have known about her for a while and knew that she shared a lot of my um, beliefs around sexuality and um, culture and government and revolution, etc. So it was really cool to have her on the podcast. She was one of the people that when I first decided to start this podcast was on my kind of short list of interviews. So um, we have a pretty overarching discussion about a lot of things. Uh, this is it's interesting. I recorded an episode right after this um, with someone named Leanne Osprey, who I think I'll release that next week. Um, but it gets into talking about a lot in regard to masculinity, femininity, and sexuality in a way that feels super vulnerable and scary for me to talk about. Um, I know I've spoken a bit about it on the podcast before, but I think these two episodes, specifically the one I'll release next week, are really get into the nitty gritty of some of the stuff that I think about and work through. Um, so all I ask is that you have an open mind. Um, I think where we get stuck with a lot of this, um, these topics is that we're unable to recognize nuance and paradox, right? Um, I won't talk too much about it, but one of the things I speak about in next week's episode is like a question was asked around toxic masculinity. Like, do I think it exists? You know, and I think the same behavior, right? Like, let's say um, power in men's sexuality can be both negative and positive. One can be toxic, one can be not toxic. And so in listening to this week's and next week's episode, I would just encourage everyone to think in those terms, right? That it's not black and white, that action and behavior and desire can come from a two totally different places and to 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 really think about intention um the intention behind those actions and those desires so uh this week's episode yeah we talk a lot about sexuality we talk about um the world we touch on the crap that's happening politically um it was a super fun conversation um so yeah, the last thing I'll leave you with before we get into this episode is a quote by Karl Popper that I found shortly after recording this that I thought was really interesting to think about and something that I thought was applicable to this episode. It is, uh, it goes, you can choose whatever name you like for the two types of government. I personally call the type of government which can be removed without violence, democracy, and the other tyranny. And to think about that, in relation to our government. Could our government be removed without violence? And if not, is it really a democracy? Just, you know, something to think about. Um, you'll also have Carsey playing a couple of live songs, or not a couple, maybe just one. I'll play one of her recorded tracks at the end, um, but I highly recommend checking out her music. It is like the perfect fucking combination of good tunes and amazing lyrics. Um, that come from a really authentic place. So enjoy, and I'll catch you on the flip side.
So I'm sitting here with Carsey, who very graciously allowed herself to be kidnapped onto the second podcast. It was like it was a very comfortable kidnapping. (laughs) Good, good, good to know. I actually, it's funny. So I'll begin by uh, taking a page out of your dad's book. So Carsey's dad uh, practices this thing called radical honesty, and I heard about you uh, through Chris in Mm -hmm. some capacity. I think like a while ago, and I found out you had this game that you had created called the effing truth. The effing truth. And I thought it was so cool, and I like there was some YouTube video about it that oh, I saw. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was this game called Loaded Questions, oh. and they then released an, a version called Loaded Questions Adult or huh. something. And it was this thing where you asked a question to a group of people, and they all had to write down their answer, and mm-hmm. then you shuffled up the answers and had to guess oh. who was what. Interesting. And it was supposed to be like inappropriate and adult and yeah. sexy, but it was like really not very (laughs) (laughs) scandalous at all you know um and I found out you had this game and I was like I have to get this game where can I get it and I think your kickstarter had just ended so like I couldn't donate and like and then I totally found you had posted a link to the pdf somewhere within the kickstarter and I definitely printed out and then like there and then peddled it to like everyone like I've got this game we have to play this game well I have like 200 of them in the car so I'll I'll probably give you some money for it Yeah, um, that was one of the reasons I wanted to create the game is because I had, like, just over my life, I've encountered a few of those, like, it's a sexy game for sexy adults. And they're just mostly really stupid. And they're also mostly very, like, just straight and, like, like straight in terms of heterosexual and also straight in terms of non-kinky. Right. Like, there's no queerness of any kind in any of those adult games. And I was like, I can do this better. Like... So so I really I spent a long time on the questions. I I did like nine different versions of the deck um and like honed it to the best 100 questions. Amazing. And now it's like available in Urban Outfitters. <laughs> it is in Urban Outfitters. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Which also was my dream with it. Like I actually so we were talking about Dan Savage earlier. Mm. He's not a close personal friend, but I've hung out with him a couple times and one of the few like personal conversations we had was right after I did the Kickstarter for the game. We were talking and he was saying, oh, yeah, you're going to sell it in Babeland and stuff. And I was like, actually, Dan, I would much rather it is sold in the, like the most mainstream place available because like sex nerds already know all this stuff. They don't like it's fun to play, but I would it'd be so much better for the world if it was like every college student in America is like, have you ever been penetrated anally by a dildo? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Have wanna, those conversations. Yeah. Have I feel, them young. I feel like I, if I recall, one of my favorite questions is like, have you been physically injured during sex or yeah. something? And I was just like, this is yeah. great. I think actually my favorite one is, have you ever had sex with someone who you thought was stupid? <laughs> so anyway, um, so now it's in Urban Outfitters and I'm, I'm stoked because I just hope that like all the 18 year olds who walk into Urban Outfitters are like, what's this? And then they like bring it to the beer pong gang or game or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> So I feel like we probably have something in common, which mm-hmm. is, and I've read some of your writing as well, that like always feeling as if sexuality was very well integrated, yeah. even as a kid. Yes. I, I don't know if I've told this story we, on the podcast. We were both one of those kids. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, and like I was teaching like how my friends how to give blowjobs, I feel like before I even gave yeah. one and would, and like you, I was reading this morning too, like getting in trouble with oh my gosh. kids' parents. I got stuff. in trouble all the time. And it was part, I mean, I do think that I was interested in sexuality as a kid, but I also think that because my dad was like an eccentric, high profile toxic, like provocateur that all of my friends' parents, and by the way, I grew up in rural Virginia and was homeschooled. So all my friends were like Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist homeschooling families. 
<laughs> everyone knew my dad was a weirdo. And so I think like if anything weird happened with any of my group group of friends, I got the I was the scapegoat kid. Yeah. So I was always getting in trouble and like getting uninvited to things by people's parents <laughs> because I was like the weird sex kid. Yeah. Do you <laughs> do you have a sense of where that came from for you? That, where it came from for me, yeah. like my sense Se- of sexuality? Yeah. I mean, it's like a nature versus nurture thing, but I always was just into it. I don't know. I was always into it. I remember like being probably five or six when I first had like sexual feelings (laughs) about a boy. I've all, I've also always been like, this is funny to say, sort of aggressively straight in terms of, and not that I haven't had sex with women because I've had sex with lots of women actually, but I'm just very into men. I'm very into men. I'm very into male sexuality. I like dicks. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, like, I can remember feeling that way when I was, like, six. The, like, I remember seeing Hanson on an infomercial on, like, Nickelodeon singing Mbop. And I was like, yeah, those boys are sexy. Oh I was obsessed <laughs> with them. I had the exact same experience. Yeah, we're, we're definitely very similar. So my dad's gay. Uh-huh. And I think... I, and because of that, I think had this very unique example of masculinity Mm -hmm. and my whole thing for my whole life has been very into men. I've always felt really comfortable with men actually more so than women. I think because there was an openness Mm -hmm. around sex that I found more challenging with men. Yeah. 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 It, It seemed to me that like yeah, I would always be like, oh, I talk about sex like I'm a dude. And yeah. like that was a space in which I felt like I could. I feel that way too. That. And I, I hope that we as millennials can just destroy this one because <laughs> I'm so sick of it. Like, yeah. and I'm in an industry, like, I'm usually the only girl in the green room or like on the stage or like on, in the tour bus. You know what I mean? Like, I'm used to being surrounded by dudes and they're like dudes because they're like musicians and whatever. There's this culture. And I, on one hand, there's like a pride about it. Like, yeah, I'm one of the guys. And on the other hand, I'm like, F- I'm not one of the guys. Like, I'm a woman. I like to have sex with men. And I'm comfortable in this situation. Like, I can hang with these people because I, like, live in the physical world and also like music. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. So I kind of want to smash that stereotype that, like, if you have certain sensibilities as a woman, you're one of the guys. You, there's lots of yeah. ways to be a woman. Totally. Yeah. I did a little <laughs> stint in a band when I was like 16 to 20 mm. and toured around and I had that same experience. Yeah. Always the only girl. Yeah. And I think there, because with sexuality, I think like for women, this sort of like powerful feminine sexuality is seen as masculine, masculine. Yeah. right? So it's like relegated to that sort of category, yeah. but I've it's been like feeling. It's like you're the exception that proves the rule. They're like, you, right. well, women don't have aggressive sexuality, so a few of them do, but they're just one of the guys. They're just one of the guys. It's like the right. way that they can, like, shelf that idea that maybe some women have aggressive sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I was just talking last night backstage to somebody about this, how, like, throughout history in the music industry, there's all these, there's not all these, but there's a handful of examples of, like, very strong women who have these big touring careers and they have these great bands and they've worked with these great people and they're very often known for being very uh, sexually assertive. Mm-hmm. So like there's all these stories about famous women who I shouldn't name drop who will like grab ass. Like if there's a new guy in the band, they'll like just kind of molest them a little bit. And and <laughs> I hope I'm not getting into the territory where someone's going to get 
accused of something. But <laughs> I think it's interesting because I think that the music industry draws a certain type of women, and it's these like uh, assertively sexual women, like we're talking about. Right, and and I guess women who, for whatever reason, feel comfortable within that space yeah. of right. yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> there was also something you you were talking about with Chris earlier about you said you had been going to church recently. Mm-hmm. I've been reading this book called The Sacred Prostitute. Oh, cool. And this whole idea of how sexuality used to women's sexuality, powerful, raw, used to be seen completely enmeshed with spirituality mm. and religion. Yeah. And over time that we've separated these, but that so hardcore too. Not only separated yeah. them, but we were like, women's sexuality is like, is the antichrist. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating to read these accounts of these women who were basically fucking men as a sacred service. That's, that's me. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm reading this, I like posted on Instagram recently, like the title of the book, I was like, the sacred prostitute, AKA an autobiography. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Like I'm looking at like four, four page 40 and already it makes so much sense. And I think for me as a kid, that was always what confused me. It was like, I was always, I was called, some girl called me a whore before I think I did anything sexual. She could just smell it on you. Which is true. She was like, you little freak. Yeah, which is true. And it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, like I am. And that feels good. But also there's this cultural thing but about I it guess being I bad. Feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I went through a lot of that same stuff. Yeah. And I honestly, I like that you brought up that idea of sacred sexuality because I, I often try to like think like, who would I be if I was able to separate all of my cultural assumptions from my brain, which of course is impossible because we're like made out of cultural assumptions as well as other stuff. But my experience of sexuality is, and always has been much closer to what you're talking about. Like to me, it's sort of the spiritual core of my life in the same way that, that writing and creating is. And to me, like creativity and sexuality are completely intertwined. Like the thing that inspires me to write is the erotic energy that I get with people and in the world. It's not like, I think there's this idea that if you're a writer, you're supposed to like live in a cabin on a mountain and just think, and that's where your ideas come from. And for me, it's the opposite of that. They come directly out of an erotic connection. And so I feel like if I was able to actually be over the shaming that I've had from the culture for my whole life, I'd be absolutely like, like, you know, I'm a goddess of the erotic energy in the world and I like use it to make music and that's what I'm about. Like, that's what it feels like internally. Yeah, and and it actually isn't, I think, like, it's seen as this kundalini energy, right? That's where it came from. Like, it is creation. Yeah. And there were these ceremonies, they called, I mean, they were, like, wedding ceremonies, basically, where they were, like, marrying a woman's sexuality to the earth mm. because to kick off the 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 season of growing, right? right? right. Like, it was only th- within that space of creation yeah. that life and nourishment yeah. was birthed, which of is... And I really think that creativity, like in the arts at least, almost it very often comes from erotic energy. And I think that the only reason we don't talk about it that way is because we like to poo-poo the erotic as though it's like dirty but also like cheap. You know what I mean? Like there's a cheapness about it. But like listen to the lyrics of any song ever and tell me that it didn't come out of the erotic force. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. So I think it's like part of being an artist for me has been like the reason I harp on sex so much in my work is because I think 
in order to embrace my life as an artist, I've had to embrace erotic energy because they're not separable to me. Yeah. Did you feel music helped you do that? Like there was there a moment where you kind of came to recognize the insidious shame and like made a decision that you weren't going to participate in that? I think, yeah, I think it has slowly unfolded over my whole life. Like I, I, it's kind of always been there. Like when I was like 14, one of my first shows I ever played. So I'm 14. I was like a pretty early bloomer. And I remember like, I just really wanted to wear this like sexy black bra underneath a like red mesh shirt. And I was going to go perform and I wanted to play. Do you remember, um, did you have the Joan Osborne record Relish? I don't think I did. Okay, this was like 1997. <laughs> okay. And um, 98, maybe. And there was a song on that record. Um, Let me use your toothbrush. Have you got a clean shirt? My panties in a wad at the bottom of my purse. The whole song. My right hand, my right hand, man. It's like just a song about having a sexy lover and like walking home after a one night stand and feeling great. And I was like 14 and I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to wear this really sexy outfit and it became like a conflict in the household. But so I feel like at the time I wasn't consciously aware of like why I was drawn to that, but it's just very, it's just all wrapped up as one thing to me and always has been. So I think it's like in order to become like a full-time musician, I've had to face what it is that's driving me and motivating me and like, who I am as an artist. And so I think I've just like slowly had to unpack that over the last 15 or 20 years. Yeah. How have you managed it within the space of relationship? So I'm married and I've been married for 12. Well, we've been together for 12 years, married for six or something like that. Um, and we are open married. And so, um, and we have been open pretty much since we very first started dating. My husband's name is John and we like, we had a one night stand. We met dancing. We used to both dance. We had a one night stand and then we like woke up in the morning and like we basically had a really strong connection and we had like the talk right away. So the morning after we first had sex, I was like, listen, I haven't been single for that long. Like I had just gotten out of a long relationship that was not great. And I was like, and I really like being single and I'm really enjoying like sleeping around. And so, um, I would love to keep seeing you because obviously this is really fun, but can we just pretend like we're still single? And he was like, that sounds great. So the first like month we were together, we were spending most nights together, but we also were like operating under the, the theory that we were still single. <laughs> and in a way, our whole marriage has grown out of that sensibility. Like we're very, we both really value our independence and we both, I think want what we want from a partnership is someone who, basically supports us unconditionally and wants us to be, uh, the, the best version of ourselves, which for both of us includes sex and like not only with each other. Um, and he also, you know, got really early on that music was what my life was about and that I was going to be writing songs and making records for the foreseeable future. And that writing songs was intimately related to like having love affairs and lust affairs. Um, so he's always, he is really, been incredible about it yeah like he's really gotten his ego out of the way about it <laughs> yeah I think it's so beautiful like in talking about men and masculinity to find men who aren't threatened yeah. by that is 
I think, really rare. Yes, it but. is really rare. He is he's extremely secure as a person, <laughs> right? Which I think is what I was attracted to about him initially. I was like, I want somebody that I can't scare off by like being too much. Totally, destroy <laughs> my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I remember like the first maybe six months or a year after we got together, um, I had my first experience of like hooking up with another guy who I also developed feelings for. And I remember, I remember me and John, like, so the guy was like staying in our house and me and him had been like banging all day while John was at work. And then John would come join in. It was all like very intense. And it was the first time that ever happened. I was like, what is this crazy life? And then, so I was just having a lot of feelings and I like hadn't really pulled them apart. And me and John went to a date. We went on a date and saw a movie. And I remember like after the movie, we went and sat on a park bench and I just like burst into tears and I was like, I don't know what's the matter with me. And John was like, I think you might be falling in love with him. And I was like, you're right. I'm falling in love. Oh, God. And he was like, well, I can see why you would. He's really cool. And he's like a really hot guy. And he, and then he like kind of paused and he was like, I think that I'm better for you. But if you want to date him to like decide that, then you should. <laughs> I was just immediately like you're the best person ever. Like there's yeah. no way I'm going to leave you ever. Cause that's such a incredibly like generous response. And it was so, it was so honest. Like he wasn't trying to be, you know, he wasn't trying to be the good guy. It was just like, he thought about it and he was like, well, obviously you want to be happy. So you get to pick. But like, if you want my opinion, I think I'm a better guy for you. <laughs> and I was just like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like, and it speaks to this whole thing about how these experiences, I think this is like a disconnect for people a lot, that those types of experiences being in an open relationship, practicing non-monogamy, that it is absolutely a tool to make two people more intimate, right? Totally. That this isn't necessarily, not necessarily, it shouldn't be a mode by which they got farther apart yeah that yeah. has definitely been our experience and we've gone through all different kinds of permutations like of course 12 years of being together while also having other partners you can imagine there's been many kinds of <laughs> many yeah. kinds of experiences and little dramas and stuff but i think yeah we we feel more intimate now than we ever have and and i think for me the thing that makes me feel so incredibly satisfied in my marriage is just that I really feel like he gets me. Like I never feel like I have to explain why I'm attracted to someone or why I might want to do like, it's the same with like touring, like touring is hard on a lot of marriages cause you're gone all the time. But like he would never in a million years ask me to not do a tour date. Like we just went to his dad's memorial and I remember him saying like the week before the memorial, we had to go to Hawaii cause that's where he's from. And he was like, because my record came out like during the week we were supposed to be at the memorial. And he's like, if you get some gig, like if you have to go do a show, you know that you can. And like, that's always been his attitude is like, my life is my life. He wants me to have the best life that I can. And it's like, not about him. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I just find that that just makes me feel so in love with him. It's like, makes it so present that he's like the person for me. <laughs> Did you, I mean, has he experienced, like, I just thought about this. I feel like as women, we, I've always found it really hard to find other women that understand where I'm coming from in yeah. my experience. And I would imagine it's the same for yeah. men who fit into that group of like, why aren't you more protective? You and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's hard to find people. It's almost like the more out of the box you get, the fewer people there are out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yeah. But I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of used to it. And, and I feel like I have this wonderful community of people and they're just, they just happen to be dispersed all over the globe. You know what I mean? Like I, I got over the idea that I should have my closest friends be in the city where I live. For sure. And like I travel enough, I go visit my best friends and they're everywhere and it's fine. Yeah. But, but it's definitely like, we're not going to like become best friends with like the couple that we meet next door. It's just the likelihood is very low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's this author that I love, this guy, Michael Warner. This was like one of my introductions into all of this when I was young. I must have been 14 or 15 mm-hmm. when I read it. And he wrote, uh, wrote this book called The Trouble with Normal. Mm. It's a gay man arguing against gay marriage because like why are we trying to fit into this heteronormative institution we have this opportunity to completely create another reality and yet we're trying to move closer toward what we were trying to break out of in the first place that's how i feel about american democracy right now yeah (laughs) everyone's like alexandria ocasio cortez and i'm like yes but we still have to actually overthrow the government or yeah. we're all gonna die yeah. oh yes <laughs> yeah no this I'm is like, exactly she's how really I cool i like listening to her talk but she's not gonna fucking fix it we're too no. we are past that people i completely <laughs> agree and i'm glad you i haven't totally like it's i it's funny because i've got this podcast called a millennial's guide to saving the world and i haven't even like fully talked about that but i i completely agree like calling my fucking senator like we were like 700 we're years over, past yeah like yeah. we should have called our senators about global warming in like 1978 when the first studies came out. Maybe we would have gotten something done. Right. Probably not. But I'll tell you what, we're not going to get it done now. Right. <laughs> the only thing that's going to get it done now is like a global transition into a different form of society. And I know that sucks because it's probably not going to happen, but nothing else is going to work either. No. And I, <laughs> it's like yeah. the way my little brother says it is like every future is equally impossible from where we stand right now it's impossible to imagine what's about to happen because everything that you can think of seems impossible right which is like sort of an exciting time to be alive i guess that's what's <laughs> fun about being a millennial is we're like we don't know what the fuck the world's gonna look like in 40 years yeah well and i think like we're all starting i mean my theory about all of this there's a um inesco quote i believe and it's that revolution is a change in the state of consciousness mm-hmm. and like for me i think what I found super damaging was to be someone. So I was married for, well, I was in a relationship for seven years. We were only married for seven months, but it was a monogamous relationship. Yeah. It was like, I had to go through this very like anti Anya experience yeah. to be like, actually, like, wait, I get it. I cannot do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny. My, my dad kind of went through a similar experience, kind of always or considered himself bisexual and mm-hmm. was like, it was the, 80s and he was in his early 20s and he's like you know it'd just be a lot easier to be straight so i'm gonna just like try this and i love this woman and i would like kids and then eventually was like um actually just kidding (laughs) um but i think and and throughout this time like i studied gender and sexuality in college Mm -hmm. prior to this relationship and i i always had this thought well you know i can just have all these ideas that are kind of like defined me as a person but i don't necessarily need to live that life yeah and that lie became very apparent pretty quickly yeah um but for me it's just like that's all i can do it seems or the most influential thing i can do is to live in alignment with who i feel that i am right so whether that's being non-monogamous whether that's being a whore whether that's like whatever i need to do to just live in a way that feels instinctual Mm -hmm. that 
politics that the world is going to respond to a lot of people living like that, right? So if we're opting out of systems, in my mind, those systems will be more likely to crumble. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think how to phrase this in a way that's not like, I don't want to be a dick, but I think that I used to feel that way and, and I lost my faith in that approach, which is not to say that it's wrong, but just to reflect on like one of the biggest changes in my life over the last couple of years has been losing my faith in that particular ideology, which is that like by opting out, you can change the system. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think the only way to change the system at the point in history where we are now is like a massive, well-coordinated, organized movement of people. Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I say, unfortunately, because I really don't see it happening. And like, yeah. so I'm not saying don't opt out. I'm like, definitely live the way that you want to live and what makes you happy. Cause yeah. it very well might be that that's the best you can do in your lifetime. Right. I was like, it's better than nothing. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. But I also think like the way I've been thinking about it recently is we don't know if there will be a revolution or what it will look like or when it would happen. But to me, it's important to make myself available to it as right. it arises. Right. Like, I don't think I'm going to be, you know, fucking... I don't know who a good example would be. I want to say Fred Hampton, who was like one of the leaders of the Black Panthers or like Martin Luther King might be the thing. I'm not going to be like the person who articulates what the revolution looks like, but I will happily join it as it arises. And like, to me, it's important to, I I feel like I'm in this process of readying myself for that day. For sure. Well, and I guess that's (laughs) kind of what I'm saying though, is like, yeah, if I can, like, I I have this thought about children, I guess that I never, like I'm kind of the jury's out on whether I want yeah. kids, but certainly I never wanted to bring them with in into the system. I could yeah. not raise kids within this space. Like it just, yeah. So if I could create a world or a life for myself that didn't necessarily depend on all of these systems that I didn't support, yeah. that if they all crumbled, I'd be okay. Yeah. Right. I would have ground to stand on. Whereas if we're consistently, uh, lying to ourselves that we are being protected by these things yeah. or that we can change them somehow structurally. Yeah. If that were to happen outside of our control, yeah. then we are going to be super fucked. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think I also, I just, I, I want to also think about like, so we're, we're white and we have certain access to certain protections that a lot of people don't have. And, and like, I'm sick of the conversation about privilege cause it's like boring but the conversation I would like to have is, okay, if we're coming up to this precipice where like institutions are crumbling, who is, who is the most at risk in that situation? And it's not you and me. Mm-mm. And so to me, like the more interesting question is not how will I protect myself and my family, but how will I protect the families who are going to be spit out the fastest, which is already happening. Completely. So it's like the people that are attempting to immigrate to the U.S. from South and Central America right now are like being locked up in concentration camps and like separated from their children and stuff. And like, that's, that is what happens when societies start to crumble. So it's now, it's not like, what will we do in a future where society crumbles? It's like, it's crumbling, but it crumbles from the bottom. And like, so there are people below us on like the hierarchy of society who are falling off of the edge and it's happening all over the world. So to me, like the interesting question, how do we save the world is how do we save those people? And like, how do we save those people when, those people are half the world population instead of several million. It's, you know, three or 4 billion people. 
Yeah, I actually, I think it goes, there was this amazing graph that someone made that I share a lot that basically traces everything back to colonization. Yeah. And I think that's, it makes total sense to me, right? Yeah. Like if all of this was founded on genocide, racism, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, slavery, yeah. that the only way to solve everything that happened after is to go back to that initial point yeah. of de colonizing this country which like is a revolution yeah it is yeah there's two really good books about that that i recommend (laughs) one is (laughs) is called stamped from the beginning Uh which is i just talked about on chris's podcast which is a history of racist ideas in america um it's written really well i mentioned so i'm a marxist and uh that has different meanings sort of to different people but one of the most interesting tenets of marxism to me is this is the stupidest name for it they call it dialectical materialism Don't even worry about it because that's like the most confusing way to say it. It's the idea that the material conditions of a society determine the uh, cultural and psychological thing that happens. So the the psychology follows the structural setup rather than the other way around. So like we, we tend to think in terms of psychology and then action because that's how it is to be an individual person. You have an idea and then you do a thing, but within large societies, the way it usually works is there's a condition where like you have an economic situation, you have certain classes that have certain conflicts and out of that certain ideas sort of rise to the top and become popular. So like stamp from the beginning, he talks a lot about why the idea of slavery was thought to be moral for so long. And it was basically because we had to have slavery in order to run the economy of this young country that we had here. And so slavery was the basis of the society that we created here. And therefore we couldn't afford to stop doing it. And if you can't afford to stop doing it, there's this market for ideas about why it's okay. Mm -hmm. So you have all these like religious figures throughout the like 15, 16, 1700s who are like, Oh, actually like black people are children of ham and God is punishing them. And that's why they're slaves. And then later someone's like, well, it's actually that uh, black people are naturally meant to be enslaved because they're like dumber and slower and stronger. And so God created them for us to enslave. And then a little later, it's like, well, it's just that, okay, maybe they would be equal, but because they've been slaves for so long, they don't know how to be equal. And if we gave them their freedom, they would just fuck it up. They wouldn't know how to use it. So it's like the history is just like, these weaker and weaker justifications for a thing that is clearly wrong and everybody knows that it's wrong, but there's this market because you can't stop doing it as a society yet. And I think we're in a really similar position right now with like, with capitalism (laughs) where it's like, basically there's a huge market for the justification of capitalism because we are doing it so hard. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say the same parallels could be made to sexuality totally. as well. Yeah. There's a huge market for people who want to say that like monogamous marriage is the right way to do sexuality. Right. And like as long as we keep our as long as like there's a structural interest in monogamous marriage which is already is definitely breaking down. So it's an interesting time. As long as that structural interest is there, there's going to be a market for like people who come up with a harebrained theory about why that's the the God's way or like the natural way or like our brains are built for that or whatever. Yeah. I I would love, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but I would love to talk about the Me Too movement. I would love to hear your... (laughs) 
<laughs> so I wrote a really long essay on it. Okay. I don't know if you read it. I don't. I have okay. it. Okay. On my blog, yeah. the most recent essay is like a year old, <laughs> mm. and it's about me too, and it's like probably 30 pages long. Yeah. It took me a really long time to write, so I'm just prefacing it with okay. that because I have a lot of thoughts about it, yeah, and yeah. they're not very mainstream. Yeah. Same. <laughs> Shockingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just launch into it or do you? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, okay, I have a few, di- I have a few different approaches. So first of all, I think that, um, sexuality is really complicated and that the Me Too movement is one of many efforts to make it simpler than it is. So I'm not, I think that, um, there's a sort of faction of people who want to, um, say that any sort of sexual advance, if there's any sort of power imbalance is like immoral and wrong and oppressive. And I think that's, that is just not true. It's much more complex than that. I also wouldn't say that like, it's all fine. You can make an advance whenever you want from wherever you are. Like, that's also not true. There's quite a lot of stuff in nuance, between. Nuance, <laughs> people. Nuance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely nuance. And I also felt like during, during the Me Too sort of panic, there was a lot of loss of nuance about, like, all, all these stories came out at the same time with the same hashtag. And so people were conflating, like, Weinstein raping women over many years repeatedly and, like, putting them in situations where their career was at stake and they had to have sex with them with like Aziz Ansari, like having a bad date basically mm-hmm. <laughs> was, I don't know yeah. if you read the Aziz Ansari yeah, one. Yeah. That one was the worst to me. Cause I was like, first of all, <laughs> bad sex is not a crime. Right. It sucks. <clears throat> like we've all been there where we thought someone was hot. It turned out they weren't. Well, and it took it like <laughs> that whole story, like took so much agency away from this woman. That who, is the worst yeah. part. Right. That's the worst part. Yeah. And that was rampant. Just like the idea that if you're in any situation with any man who could be construed as having any kind of power over you, you are suddenly like a completely passive receptacle of sex. Right. And I just cannot go with that. I just right. cannot dig that. Yeah. <laughs> and the the reason this came up for me is this whole idea of like, what is the solution to all these problems? And I think what people make the mistake doing is thinking we need to do the opposite, exactly the opposite, yeah. the, the, the re- exact, <laughs> ref, like 180 degree yeah. difference. And I think when we do that in this case, I mean, I don't, and I'm less clear on it, I guess, in regard to capitalism and colonization, but certainly with sexuality, it's like there's something about the combination of like masculine and feminine. There's something about power, which I, power dynamics, which I don't think is at all unhealthy. And to say that like the solution to this is that women become more like men and men to become like more like women, I think is completely missing the point. And I think really it's just this, like, we need to define both. We need to shift the definition of both in a certain way and reimagine it but not create the inverse i don't think there's actually a problem with that with masculinity and femininity existing right Right. yeah i mean i think like we're in this moment of real breaking down of the concept of gender which i i'm cool with like i i do identify as female and i also have a lot of very feminine qualities at the same time i have like quote-unquote masculine qualities like we were talking about earlier to me what would be most interesting is to see a society where qualities like personality traits are not so associated with gender 
And that includes personality traits about like sexual assertiveness or like who should or shouldn't uh, initiate a sexual interaction, who is allowed to seduce who else. Like to me, what would be interesting as a fallout of the Me Too movement would be a world where like people are allowed to talk about their sexuality with clarity, regardless of their gender. And then other people are able to respond honestly to those discussions. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So like as a man or as a woman, you could say like, I have the hots for you. How do you feel about that? And then as a man or as a woman, you could then say, I am not attracted to you. Yeah. So have a nice day. Yeah. And that would be all fine. Like to me, until we get to that, we're going to keep having the same problems, which are that people feel uncomfortable about sex. And so if anything sexual happens, panic ensues and like all kinds of like dumb shit falls out of it. Yeah. (laughs) I have struggled with that for so long. And I think, and this is like, I think my thing with the Me Too movement is like, for me, I just need to take responsibility for my own bullshit. I, and I don't have any sort of weird, like anti-man ass, anti-masculinity thing. I find it to be beautiful and protective and amazing. Um, but I've always felt that too. And I've, I've gotten myself into trouble, I think, because I'm like, I just want to like, we're attracted to each other. Like there's a sexual thing happening (laughs) here. And instead of like, I just want you to know that I know and that that's okay. Right. Like, and I feel this protective quality over the man of like, I know you want to fuck me. It's fine. I'm not mad mad about it. I feel the same way. And, and I do think that we escaped our female socialization to a certain degree because either we're lucky or like the chemicals in our brains, like we have more testosterone or whatever it is. But like, I definitely have compassion for, for women who have not escaped their socialization to the same degree that I have. Cause I get, I got it. Like I was there for it. (laughs) I was also shamed about sex and told to be polite and like all that bullshit. But I like, it just didn't, the zap did not work on me. (laughs) Yeah. But so, yeah, so I'm with you. Like I would love for for more people to be able to approach sex the way that I naturally approach it, which is like, what's the problem? We're here. There's sex. Don't, don't freak out. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I think it it does get dangerous though, because I, and my therapist said something really funny to me when she was just like, yeah, but that's not really the society we live in. And I think I was speaking to the fact that like, there are times when I have brought that up within the space with a man and there's an assumption that I'm bringing it up because because you want to bang. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I hate that. That's the worst. I get that all the time because I talk about sex on stage and I talk about like having a high libido and stuff. And I'm like constantly getting like long emails from random middle-aged men that I've never met about like their, the details of their sex lives and what do I think about their fetish? And I'm just like, that's not what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and for, in terms of the Me Too movement, it's like for me making, make, having just a lot of self-awareness around my own sexuality and like making sure that I'm not using it as a tool of power or manipulation, right? Like I actually think that there are ways that women have, I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time too. Like, well, the system is working against me. So it's not my fault if I use it in the way that it was set up to be used where like, yeah, well, if I have to give someone a blowjob to get ahead, I shouldn't be blamed for that. And I find that problematic. Yeah. Not to give a blowjob to get ahead, but to not admit that you're participating in the same system that you are desiring of tearing down. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I also think So I kind of think in some ways the Me Too movement was like a ham-fisted attempt to confront 
um, structural imbalance, like structural gender imbalance. So in other words, like I'm definitely not anti-man. I fucking love men or anti-masculinity, but I'm definitely anti-patriarchy. And what I mean by yeah. that is that the, we have set up institutions to favor men the same, the same way we've set up institutions to favor white people. And although legally that is no longer supposed to be happening, uh, it's been set up that way for a long time and it takes a while to dismantle it. And so I think the Me Too, mo- the Me Too movement is trying to uh, continue to dismantle the patriarchy, but I think it's doing it in a slightly ham-fisted way. And it's unfortunately casting about a lot of sexual shame, which isn't really useful for women or for men. And that was like my biggest beef with it is I'm like, this sounds a lot like sexual moralizing from yeah. the church or your parents <clears throat> or whatever. Like there's a lot of like... Um, it is wrong to feel attracted to someone and try to express it going around in the Me Too movement, which I think was sort of accidental. It's like because that's so heavily in the culture, it just got snowballed into this thing that was actually an attempt to address structural imbalances. And like the way I wish we had been able to talk about it is to say, like, why are all the heads of studios men? Let's not just not do it anymore. Let's just fire those guys, hire some women. (laughs) And like, it won't fix the problem, the quote unquote problem that like sometimes people are sexually attracted to people who they have power over, Mm -hmm. but it will at least untie it from gender, which I think right now it's very tied to gender. Like because men have so much of the power, male sexuality has more power than it should. Right. And if, if we had a society where women had the same amount of power as men, I think that female sexuality, like there'd be as many me too's about women as there are about men. Yeah. And that would be great for me. That'd be fine. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I forget her name, but the woman who actually created the me too movement created that slogan a very long time ago. And it was all about, I guess she was sexually molested or abused as a kid and then became a counselor and sat in a room with a young girl who had experienced the same thing but there was no con there was no way for her to say like me too i experienced this as well and i want you to know that you're not alone right and so she created this slogan or this movement and it was never supposed to be let's publicly share our stories it was supposed to be a safe protected intimate between people right yeah, and and the public shaming thing, I feel like there's a place for it. Like I'm very into like doxing like Nazis. People go to Nazi rallies yeah. and even doxing men who are like serial sexual harassers, they should lose their jobs. I agree with that. And I think the problem is because we have so little nuance around sex, it was like as soon as the possibility of publicly shaming someone who made you feel bad existed, it like just ran away with itself. Right. <laughs> and so it was like there was no way to say There was no way to identify which interactions uh, are worth shaming someone so that they lose their job and which ones aren't because we're really bad at identifying, at finding nuance within sex. Yeah. And I think to publicly shame, and yes, nuance, like, but masculinity in general, because I think there are some like masculine tendencies that are also repressed or seen as unhealthy in some way. And Mm -hmm. I don't. I wish there were kind of more spaces for men to be men. And I say this to people all the time. There are, there are tons of spaces for men to be men, but I don't actually agree with that. I don't think in a way that we see as very healthy in a way that they're actually exhibiting in a way that's healthy. And so to say like, you don't have a right to be 
aggressive or, you know, desiring in a kind of masculine sense that that's actually going to proliferate the problem because it's a repression. (laughs) It's funny too, because I think this is a millennial problem. I think that our generation of men are like particularly, um, uh, how do I say this? They're they're particularly afraid of upsetting people. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like walking on eggshells and trying not to be aggressive. It's not sexy. I've dated older men my whole life. And I'm yeah. like, I'm, I, maybe that's part of it. It's, I, <laughs> it's funny because I wrote a song like 10 years ago called Backbone mm-hmm. where the chorus is um, show me something I can rely on or I would rather be alone. You give your heart, but I'd rather have your backbone. So it's okay. sort of like you're a wimp and it's not sexy to me. Be hot. Turn me on. Be, like be manly. Because that's I have the same attractions that you have to like traditional masculinity. And I think that in our generation, it's like being filtered out. So I'm conflicted because like my feeling is it's just so complicated. The shit that turns people on, like part of the reason that we're turned on by like what we consider traditional masculine characteristics is because we come, we exist in culture and like we've seen movies, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so I'm not, I'm not sure that I buy the biological idea of gender. Like, I think that there are certain traits probably that are more common with people with more testosterone, but it's like, we've so overshot that idea. Like we've so tried to make gender into a bigger deal than it is (laughs) that I feel like we're in this cultural evolution that happens to be unsexy to me, which is a bummer, but I feel like it does have a point. Like it's get it's headed in a direction that's going to be better for everybody. Yeah. And probably the kids who are being born now are going to have a really different sense of what's sexy than we do. Yeah. We're just in an awkward phase where like we watched, like I watched fucking Gene Kelly dance, but also like James Dean movies, the original James Dean, also the new James Dean. Mm-hmm. And so like, <laughs> so like my sexuality was built in a culture where traditional masculinity was considered hot and valuable and good. And now we're shifting to a culture where, uh, certain traits associated with traditional masculinity are being shamed. And I think we're, on, I think we're probably headed somewhere good with it. Yeah. But it definitely means that like the people that I'm attracted to are like dwindling (laughs) out of my generation. Yeah. Well, and I've I've experienced this thing too of like being able to, I I had this realization recently. I've always said like, I'm like a guy. I'm always considered myself more masculine. Yeah. Totally like always felt like a woman, never actually felt like a man, but felt like I had a lot of masculine tendencies. And I realized that like what I shame myself for most are feminine qualities, Mm. right? Like wanting to be within the space of community. This is like idea like, oh no, be alone, do it on your own, self-reliance, right? And these things kept happening like, oh, my vulnerability, my wanting to share a lot, my, um, all of this stuff. And I found that within the space of healthy masculinity that I actually feel free and more comfortable to be a woman. Mm. And, and, and also kind of fighting against culture of like, but wait, it actually feels really good to like relinquish control. Yeah. Like I actually don't want to be <laughs> yeah. in control all the time. Yeah. And like, and then there's this whole thing of like all the feminists come yelling at me. Yeah. Cause it's like, but wait a second. Like I really do just kind of yeah. want to be protected in certain senses. Yeah. I and, feel that way about like looking sexy. Like I just yeah. find it so fun yeah. to just look 
like traditional feminine sexy to wear like a pinupy thing that's like an hourglass figure and some see-through stuff and some fishnets like I think that's really fun and like I definitely in some part of my brain I'm like you're a bad feminist you're supposed to not flaunt your sexuality and then the other part of me is like fuck that it's fun and so I, I feel like all these different cultural movements are toward the same goal which is every person should be able to express themselves in whatever way works for them And, like, it takes so much breaking down of all different kinds of stereotypes from all different directions and also of different structural imbalances. Yeah. So it's like we're just being hit with all of this bullshit from all directions, and it takes a lot of willpower to, like, extricate yourself from Mm -hmm. that. Yes. But I do think we all have the same goal in mind. Agreed. Which is, like, everyone who is born should get to be who they are. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. And that's actually why I brought up (laughs) that guy, Michael Warner, with the the trouble with normal, because... I was watching a video of him as recently and he says like, all you have to really do is opt out of one of these systems. Once you do that and you see that there are other people that are willing, that are like you, it's, you are less likely to fall into what I think he called the blackmail of culture. Yeah. It's like once you do one of those things, right. it's like the the it's door opens. You're like, wait, yeah. it's, this is all made up. Totally. Yeah. When I first you ever watched the show Atlanta, I haven't. This is a great show. And yeah, there's yeah. like an amazing line in it. There's this character who's kind of a sidekick character, but he's just like this weird, like he just says weird shit all the time. And at one point he like walks into the kitchen and he's like, breakfast bowl. It's the new thing. Breakfast bowl. He's like eating eggs out of a bowl. And his friend's like, man, you made that up. And the guy's like, everything's made up. Stay woke. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Everything's yeah. made up. Yeah. Stay oh, woke. For sure. I think that's actually what sparked this whole thing for me. I found out my dad was gay at 10. And they, my parents got divorced when I was five. Yeah. And so there, there was this period of time. My dad very quickly was in a relationship with a man. They lived together. It was my dad's friend. Yeah. I saw them kissing, holding hands, <laughs> sleeping in the same bed. We were with him all the time. Never once did I question it as anything right. worth questioning or abnormal. And then I learned about gay and I put pieces together. My parents basically decided they would tell me when I asked. Yeah. And eventually I asked. And so I hear that my dad is gay and I don't really know a lot about what gay means, but I know it's bad. And my dad was going to, my mom, this conversation happened with my mom and my dad was going to come over and I was terrified because Mm -hmm. I thought gay is really bad. So my dad is going to walk in with like horns or like he's going to be an asshole. I was scared shitless. It didn't make any logical sense, but I couldn't rationalize it. So then my dad walks in the door. He's the same dad dad. who I love and who I was really close to. And in that moment at 10, I was like, but wait a second. So if there's this thing that everyone thinks is bad and I know my... everything else also Exactly. And like... And it wasn't until college and I like learned the term social construction yeah. and I was like, oh, everything makes sense now. Like <laughs> all of this questioning. Yeah. I have a friend who like was raised evangelical and was like, she was in like Catholic, co- no, no, in Christian college of some kind. And I just remember her telling the, the story of the moment that she lost her religion, which is she's in class. And for whatever reason, she just like catches a wild hair and raises her hand and she's like, why isn't God a woman? <laughs> And they're just like, well, God's not a woman, like whatever. They give some bullshit answer. And she was just like, and that was it. I just didn't yeah. like, none of it was true anymore at that moment. Cause I was like, well, if God's everything, how could God be a man? That doesn't make sense. And it's just like all of the rest of the bullshit just fell away. Yeah. Yeah. 
Love it. Well, hopefully this episode, Carsey and I give you all permission <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to just be it's a fucking weirdo. made up. Yeah. yeah. I feel that way about being homeschooled. I think partly because I was homeschooled, it's like mm. my setting entering society was a lot of the things that everybody else does aren't actually very important to do, like right. school. Everyone's yeah. in school. I wasn't in school. I'm fine. It went fine. And yeah. so then it was like, next thing you know, I'm like in an open marriage and like living as a traveling musician and fucking yeah. a Marxist anti-capitalist. Yeah. So it just all fell apart. It's guys. all downhill <laughs> from there. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been podcasting all day, but I would Ooh. love you to play a song. Oh, you're sure. into it. What are your thoughts? We decided we would play something thematic. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to do the song Jacket. Okay. Sort of a um, song about having an assertive sexuality Sweet. as a woman. Awesome. <laughs> um, this song, <laughs> a lot of my songs, I will start with like me thinking of a lyric that is entertaining and funny to me. And this one was like, I was actually sexting someone. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> someone who's funny and we had yeah. a funny sexting relationship. And yeah. so I texted, I like your shirt. I like your jacket. I like to think about you when I whack it. And then I was like, ooh, maybe that would be a song. <laughs> I took a good long drive down the NJ Pike Thinking why you gotta be the type of boy I like Why you act so dumb, all the books you read You got a body like that, but you're living in your head <laughs> All right, so I have two more last questions. Yeah. I always ask my guests if they could recommend. You did mention a couple books. Oh yeah, but you weren't asked this question, so I'm gonna give you the opportunity. If you could mm. recommend one book mm. to like everyone, I know that's. Well, I already recommended one, so I'll do a different did. one. Yeah. Um, the Shock Doctrine. Cool. Have you read that one? I haven't. It blew my mind. 
Who is it by? Uh, Naomi Klein. Cool. It's basically about how the U.S. Uh, forces other countries to do free market capitalism mm. for the benefit of U.S. corporations. Yeah. And we've been doing it since, like, the 1950s. Yeah. And we do it through, like, war, military coups, economic starvation, where we, like, put sanctions on another country that makes it so they can't survive unless they let us buy all of their land and companies. Good old America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I keep thinking about it a lot because people are so upset about, quote, unquote, the uh, Russia meddling in our elections. Right. And I'm like, you know who meddles in elections a lot? Oh, yeah. Exports motherfuckers. all of our bullshit. Yeah, totally. How come we're allowed to do it and Russia's uh, not? Yeah. Think about that for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> the rules do not apply no, to us, apparently. they sure don't. Yeah. And secondly, so you're on tour right now. Mm-hmm. Um, where where can people find you, learn more about you, all yeah. that stuff? Yeah. com is the one-stop shop. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N. Um, and I have a ton of tour dates between now, which is March and June. So I'm playing most of the cities in the U.S. in the next few months. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again for letting me kidnap you. Thank you. Podcast. What a pleasant kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. We should. It's a good name for kidnapping. Well, the, the pleasant kidnapping yeah. podcast. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Hello again. Thanks for sticking around. Um, so I am going to play you out with another Carsey Blanton song. This one's called Desire, and it's also off her new album called Buck Up, and it's so beautiful. Um, I have been listening to it on repeat. I I struggled with what other of her songs I wanted to play, because there are so many, both from both the new album and, um, previous, but... This one's just been in my head a lot and uh, I think goes along with the theme of this episode. So this song is Desire. By the way, I have created a Spotify playlist with all of the music that I am going to be playing or have played on the podcast and going to be playing in the future. So I'll keep adding to it every week. Um, It's called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. So if you have Spotify and you want to have one place, a playlist that has all that music, uh, you can go check that out. And that's it. Uh, Looking forward to talking to you all next week.
Die. 